you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to another podcast. Of course, we always have the best guests here today on The Chris Voss Show. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the show, refer to your friends, neighbors, relatives, get them involved. Uh, if you're listening to the audio version on this on our channels, you can also watch the video version on youtube.com for slash Chris Voss. Uh, today, we have a most excellent guest, a man that I'm very excited to have on the show. He's written uh, a great book, introduced me to a, uh, a, an incredible thinker and a writer. Uh, his name is Eddie Glaude Jr. I'm sure you've seen him. Uh, he's an American academic. He is the James S. McDonald, uh, McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. He is also the chair of the Center of African American Studies and the chair of the Department of African American Studies. He is the author of the great book, 2020, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Welcome to the show, Eddie. How are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Good, 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 good. I, I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, can you give us some plugs where people can uh, can uh, order your book and, and take sure. advantage of it? Go to uh, bookshop.com. That's an independent bookstore seller, Amazon. Uh, uh, please go to your local independent bookstore. So the book is everywhere, really. So Barnes and Nobles, uh, Books a Million, a whole bunch of places. That would be great. And and I've I mentioned to you this in the pre-show. I want to give a plug out to this book. I encourage everyone to go buy this book to help understand not only what's going on in our world, what's gone in the past, uh, what we'll talk about in the show, the lie, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you know, I watch Eddie on MSNBC. Uh, it's one of the, he's one of the people on there, like Mike Barnacle and the Rev and everybody. That when you guys say something, I turn and go, wait, okay, I got to pay attention to what's, what what Eddie's about to say, and. Uh, uh, and also John Meacham, I should put a plug in there, and Eugene Robinson. Um, but uh, I'd seen your book getting promoted, and I never heard of James Baldwin before. And I, I, I feel like an idiot, and I feel like I wasted half my life not knowing who this man was. Uh, but I'm, I'm consuming it now. And uh, so I was like, okay, well, I'll find out what, what this book is about when uh, I get Eddie's book. And we had the uh, uh, Nicholas Bacola on with the fire oh, upon yeah. us, and he talked about William F. Buckley. In fact, he sends mm-hmm. his regards. Uh, we had him on the show, and just as a matter of serendipity. And so I was like, well, I should watch as research this William F. Buckley uh, James Baldwin <laughs> famous thing that I'd never seen before. I feel, yeah. I feel like my, my, half my life is just gone. Um, and I was taken. I was stunned. I was riveted. I was blown away. I, you know, I, I love great orators, great thinkers. Christopher Hitchens, I, 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 I love just sitting and watching him talk. Um, and, uh, and so I was just enthralled. In fact, I started watching so many James Baldwin's videos. I showed up five <laughs> minutes late to Nicholas's interview. So I want to thank you, the great beauty of this book is helping me understand James Baldwin and it's a beautiful tribute to uh, someone that you revered all your life and uh, moving there are a couple points that got me teary in the book so I want to thank you and I want to encourage everybody to go out and buy the book thank you Chris how's that for a plug (laughs) I love it I love it I poured my heart into this one so this is great 
I, I kind of heard that, uh, I think, in the introduction, and uh, you're talking about that on, on uh, MSNBC. And uh, i got to tell you, we, we live our lives hoping to change other people's lives and make a huge difference. And so I just wanted to give you that plug because you've made that in my life, and oh, yeah. I'm trying to share your message out there and, and change the world to, to what we can do of what James Baldwin's vision was. Yeah. yeah so let's get into it. Let's sure. uh, get, give me an overview of the book or whatever you want to throw at us on what sure. this is about. So, you know, in some ways, the book is the culmination of 30 years of reading Baldwin um, and finally bringing him to the fore. You know, he's always been a conversation partner throughout my academic career. And in my last book, Democracy in Black, he, in some ways, provided the frame for what I was doing in that text. And so finally, I said, you know, I'm going to write a book on Baldwin. That's what I initially set out to do. I'm going to write a biography of James Baldwin intellectual biography of Baldwin. And the archive was so difficult. And I didn't think I could say anything new. uh, Because, you know, some of the material is embargoed for 30 years, you can't really get at it. And I'm in Heidelberg. And I just landed, I write about this in the book in the introduction. And I, I'm, I'm in Heidelberg, no less than an hour. And they're white German police officers with their knees in the back of a black guy, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And I had the distance, you know, thank God I don't have to go on MSNBC to talk about what I just saw. Uh, so I go back to my, my apartment and I just start writing. And I got, uh, I got the frame for the book. I finally had figured out what the hook of the book would be. And that's me thinking with Jimmy about our current moment. How might I grapple with my own despair and disillusionment and reach for faith that we could actually change things? Um, and how might Jimmy offer me resources to do just that? So I wanted to kind of, as as I say, rumble, you know, rummage through the rubble, through the ruins that he left behind to see what could be of use to me. And the result was this book, Begin Again, where I'm thinking with Jimmy Baldwin about our current moment. And when you when you went to Heidelberg, I believe it was in the introduction. You were talking about going yeah. to Jimmy's house, and uh, is it okay that I call him Jimmy? I, I was, you called him I, Jimmy so much to the audio book that it, I James a Jimmy. <laughs> I call him Jimmy because he's like a close walking partner. You know, he's like a friend. You know, so it's yeah, mentor friend anything you know and it was beautiful how you described going to his house what he must have seen the the gardens and everything else in fact i i ended up googling the house to see what the what this thing was on it and it's just a it's a it's a wonderful story um you know i am one of these people that has been stuck with uh you know i voted for obama uh and we could talk about some of those other details that you had in the book uh you know i believed i believed in his uh i believed in the change i bought it you know, that was my whole thing. He was a great orator, he was a great speaker, he was a great thinker. I bought all of it. And, uh, uh, and well, I wasn't under delusion, you talk about this in the book, that we had resolved all of our racism because we'd elected an African-American president. I thought, this is a good, this is a good marker. Like, this is a good step. Um, but a lot of people did believe that that was resolved. Um, and then we saw the rise of Black Lives Matter, and then we saw the rise of Trump. And And for me... You know, I'd follow Trump all my life. I I used to adore him when the '86 when I was a kid, and then I over the years, I, it just became obvious that the guy was a scamster. You know, I watched all the stuff with the, the casinos, et cetera, et cetera, and then I knew narcissists throughout my life in business. So to me, I had his mo. Um, 
and so for me, the last four years, 2015 uh, to here, five years, uh, has been a horror show. I mean, it's been it's been my heartache, my horror show, and I'm sure a lot of people have been through that. I'm sure a lot of people go through worse in their experience of it. But uh, so going, being able to listen to Baldwin and understand why the Black Lives Matter first came up at the end of of uh, Obama's thing, and now as as we're revisiting again, and we're looking, okay, how do we resolve this again? Fifty five years from when Baldwin, you know, made some of those first speeches of going. Hey, we need to change some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just blown away. Yeah, you know, um, it's 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 striking. We're in a moment of moral reckoning right now, uh, where the country can has to make a choice about who we take ourselves to be. Um, and we've experienced these moments before, at least two times. I write about, and one is the Civil War and re- radical reconstruction, and the other is the mid twentieth century. And each of these moments where we had a chance to to really be otherwise, the country doubled down on his ugliness. And so here we, 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 we elect Barack Obama, and you hear people declaring, we finally turned the corner on race. And almost immediately after his election, what do we get? We get the vitriol of the Tea Party. And social scientists were saying early on that this wasn't just simply economic anxiety, that there was deep racial anxiety driving the Tea Party, having everything to do with the demographic shifts in the country, that were making themselves manifest in our politics. So we heard that. We saw voter, voter suppression and voter ID laws suddenly just proliferate across the country. And then we elected Donald Trump. Or as I put it, we vomited him up, right? Uh, <laughs> um, and what's That's so fascinating, mess. yeah, and what's so fascinating is that Barack Obama came into office in the midst of this extraordinary swell of grassroots organizing. Many of us forget that, you know, millions of people around the globe had organized and mobilized to to, to protest against uh, uh, the Iraq war. Hundreds of thousands of people across the United States were marching and demonstrating uh, against the war. We saw people organizing around uh, Fight for 15, a living wage. We saw, uh, even before Barack Obama, we saw uh, activism around Uh, policing in the country. And in some ways, Barack Obama got green screened. He became the object of that organizing. And once he got elected, it it was demobilized in interesting sorts of ways. And we don't really see them find their way again until Occupy, Wall Street, until Black Lives Matter. And so that activism that brought him into office had to figure itself out again. Uh, How do you hail the state when it's run by a black man? How do you bring critique to bear uh, on on racial disparity, uh, specifically in the context of the Great Recession, when black communities were being devastated and we couldn't talk specifically about what was happening to black communities because because Barack Obama didn't want to be seen as the black president? So all of this is happening. And then the country has this backlash, quote, unquote. I hate that language. But, you know, we we vomited up Donald Trump and, and then all of a sudden, all the ghosts that have haunted our politics are now haunting out in the open. Everything that's been there all along, since I can remember remembering, mm-hmm. is now in view. Uh, and here we are today. And the thing I love about your book, uh, and, and the, the thing I loved about uh, being introduced to James Baldwin through it, was 
James James is speaking. I you know I love Martin Luther King. I love Malcolm X. But a large part they were talking to African American people. Mm-hmm. The thing that I mean, there's a lot of things that I love about James Baldwin. His the way he delivers, the way he speaks, the the intellectualism of it, the emotion, um, the, the 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 way he lived his life. Um, but but the way he speaks, he speaks to me and you, and 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 to everyone. He he, you know, the flesh of my flesh, the bone of my bone. He he speaks to everyone. And I was taken when I watched the William Buckley thing, where he says, I, and I can't remember the exact of it. Uh, uh, he talks about the police officer with the with the baton or the yeah. cattle prod, yeah. and he says, "How should I, I?" Something along the lines of, "How should I judge him?" Or, and and to me, throughout most of his life, and you talk about the beauty of this through the arc of the book of to how he how he has this optimism and then he has the he has the uh the depression after he loses his friends which i can't blame him i would be too i would i would i would i would uh, that would provide a lot of darkness to my life but but how he he's always almost writing a love letter to all of us saying we're all human beings and and he gets really down to the gritty core the manifest destiny issues um the lie and and I'd love you to talk about the lie, which is uh, you talk about a lot in the book. But but basically, this he gets really down to like saying, "Here's how you can fix it, white people. Here's how you can fix it," and and it's really simple. You just have to fix yourself because it's your problem, not mine. Chris, you hit it dead on the head, Doc. Yeah, I've been watching that's, a lot of videos. <laughs> I mean, but that's that's it, right? So in the early stages of of, of Baldwin's life, he felt that our love could help white Americans see that they need to be otherwise. But then he realizes by the end, after white America assassinates Dr. King, the apostle of love, that we can't spend our energy trying to convince white people who hold noxious views that they ought to hold different views. What we have to do is spend our our time trying to build a world where those views have no quarter to breathe. But But nothing changes, though, in this sense, right? That is, that Jimmy is, he's clear, at least to me he's clear, that the messiness of the world that we inhabit is a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. That, that the lies that define us on the inside evidence themselves in our social and economic and political arrangements. And so he believes in the Socratic dictum that the unexamined life isn't worth living. So the precondition, and this is why I barely survived writing the book, the precondition to say anything about the world is that you got to deal with yourself. So I sat down to write about Trump, and I found myself dealing with the fact that I'm a vulnerable little boy, dealing with my dad, trying to figure out how might I manage my own scaffolding of lies that that undergird or support the life that I've built. And as a precondition to say anything honest and genuine about the world itself. So you're absolutely right that, you know, there's this line that I love that I always say, and it it just, it just, I swell with emotion. He says, I want us to do something unprecedented. And that is create a self without the need of enemies. And you just kind of go, damn, what would that look like? Right? What kind of world would that be? Uh, but you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, we have to do this interior work as we're trying to build a more just world. 
We really have to self-actualize, yeah. And and he was so great at, and you were so great at. In, in the arc of the book, you talk about Jimmy's vision and and uh, how he was raised and his, the impact of everything that happened to him in the world. But then you also talk about how this moves forward into the Reagan era and okay. how we saw the rise of conservatism. And one thing that you taught me that I, I really appreciate you, uh, just you're, you're, you're enlightening me and changing my life. Um, I didn't know there was the separation of white and black churches. I grew up, I grew up Mormon and let, I knew that church was like garbage <laughs> right. from the moment I was young. I just lost the Mormon on clearly, but I've lost them before. Um, I just didn't believe it. And so I left, I, I you know I, I've not been, a, I'm an atheist, so I've not been in churches, but to discover the racism of black and white churches. And then I learned about the understanding that they had been separated or they had to be separated because they, black people weren't allowed in the white churches. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, you know, to think about the Southern Baptist Convention, Methodist South, uh, we can talk about the split in American Christendom predating the Civil War, mm-hmm. that it actually foreshadows the Civil War, and it's over slavery, mm-hmm. over the issue of slavery. So, um, you know, Frederick Douglass said that, you know, the church steeple was right next to the to slave auction block, right? Um, there, there are moments, um, we have the records of, of Anglican clergy in South Carolina asking those who are enslaved as they submit to baptism, are you submitting to baptism because you want to be free or because you're giving your soul over to God? Right? So racism, uh, white supremacy, over-determining the very ways in which people believe in God, so much so that even the cemeteries were segregated. So death. Are you segregated. serious? Yes. I mean, this is, wow. I, I wasted so much of my life without learning The idolatry of race. <laughs> wow. So, so when people say black Christendom, that is in some ways a critique, an announcement of the idolatry of white Christendom. So the theologian Harold, uh, Howard uh, Thurman would say, the slave dared to redeem the religion profaned in his midst. And see, this is what I love about your book, the time that we're going through with Black Lives Matter. I, I, I bet one of my most giddiest moments recently has been seeing Black Lives Matter painted in front of Trump Tower. I, I just <laughs> find that beautiful. Uh, but, but to what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, you talk about how the, the white Christian churches uh, were helped with the rise of Reagan and Reaganism and conservatism and the repression of that era. I, that was really educational for me because I was just a kid during that era. You know, I kind of just knew the, the blathering old man who fell asleep all the time on the TV and got <laughs> shot. Um, but then you talk about how we recycle this again and the narrative of the book uh, begin again, where Jimmy keeps talking about how we have to keep beginning again we keep right. finding ourselves on these pathways um of 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 the mirrors of ourself like you say which is trump um and then you and then you talk in the book about how that brings us trump and we we've gone through this oh this is it's, it's like it's a racial hamster it's like a hamster wheel yeah right um and the thing is was was so important about uh the ruins chapter where i talk about reagan uh you know and and at the heart of that chapter is you know, this, this juxtaposition between John Cheney and Ben Cheney. You know, John Cheney, who was a part of the civil rights workers of, of Sharna Goodman and Cheney, who were killed in Mississippi during, right before Freedom Summer. And uh, how John Cheney's brother, this iconic image of his young brother weeping to the point to where his little body is shaking, how his mother had to leave Mississippi because they were still being... Uh, harassed and shot at uh, their home and they had to go to New York and how Ben Cheney ended up 
within a life with a life sentence in prison mm-hmm. uh, because he became embroiled in um, kind of this this murder spree that was connected to the Black Liberation Army in some ways. Um, but Reagan represents not only a sense of betrayal that and 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 false promises. And Ben Cheney represents that that shift in some ways, how how we move from hope to desperation and despair. But what does it mean that that the country elected him, Ronald Reagan? And what I was trying to say is that for many black activists, many black folk around the, the United States, Reagan was as bad as George Wallace. He was the governor of California during the repression of the Panthers. He was the governor of California when they were pursuing Angela Davis. He despised poor people in California. He was the avatar to the, to the, the Goldwater backlash mm-hmm. against the civil rights movement. So when the country elects him as the redeemer in chief, you know, black America goes, oh, all hell's about to break loose, right? And so what I try to do is to show that Reagan was a fantasy of white America, a kind of attempt to return to something. And he sold it beautifully with that, you know, that that disarming charm, right? Make America great again. And we tell the story of Donald Trump as if it's a story that only goes to Pat Buchanan, George Wallace, Strom Thurmond, as if Donald Trump is only a racist demagogue, as if the Reagan tributary isn't what led to Donald Trump. He's in some ways a caricature of the same impulse. He's not a Hollywood B-list actor. He's just a reality show actor, right? We did the same. I want to cuss. We did the same damn thing, right? Again, as we try to double down on this idea that America has to be white in the vein of old Europe. The beauty of the book, you, you tie all this together. Like you, you literally can see the march of the conservatism rise, especially big time during Reagan and the Tea Party, and then of course we saw, you know, what brought us Donald Trump, and and like it's an aha moment when you read the book and you're like, holy crap! Like all of this, this is the map of how we got down this route, how we got down this hole. Um, you know, I. I had all my friends, I'm a big social media person and, and all that. And so, you know, I had all these powerful social media friends, speakers, authors, um, and we all had, you know, kumbaya, Obama's and president, and <laughs> yeah. we're, we're trying to make everyone better, a rising tide lifts all boats. And then I started seeing in 2015 when, when you know, you saw the man come down the elevator, the orange man. Um, and make his statements uh, that were racially tinged or racial uh, tinged. Jeez, they were just racial um, <laughs> on Mexicans. Uh, and, and it was a, his dog whistle. Yeah. And then I started seeing my friends change. And I started seeing more discussions on social media of, you know, the Fox narrative and uh, the bashing of Obama. And, 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 I, and I started to see it with this, that sleight of hand uh, racial tinge where it's it's like you don't really say the 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 quiet part out loud but you're you're saying it and it, it started to really build on me where I'm like there's a lot of this going on and it almost seems like I have some friends that are deep in the racial closet and they're not really doing kumbaya they're just doing kumbaya because Obama's president but they're seeing on the horizon this demagogue that can tell them that they can say the quiet part out loud and eliminate PC and they're feeling emboldened. And that scared the shit out of me. Yeah. 
And I started calling it out. I started calling some of my friends out and being like, you know, I've seen enough of this stuff to know you are a racist and you're having a problem and you like Donald Trump. And then it became, well, yeah, I am. And a lot of us in, in the, you know, the, these huge groups of social uh, uh, networkers, we had to start looking at our friends and going, holy crap, you, who are you? I, right. I have no idea who you are. And then even then, I had to learn things about myself, the implicit, uh, implicit racism where, um, you know, white nationalism taught me a lot because the keywords, culture, you know, our culture, when he says that. And then they go, oh, wow, okay, I didn't know these were like, you know, this is what these guys are doing. You know, I got I to gotta take out some of these words in my vocabulary. I've got to take a look at what I'm doing. And so it gave me a search for self-actualization to, right. to say, how do I contribute to this? How, what impl- implicit biases do I have that maybe I contribute to? Um, and, and with your book that in, in James Baldwin, that talks about how we all have to go down that journey. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is, is that there is this un deniable faith in our capacity to be otherwise but it just it's not going to happen by osmosis yeah right we have to you know baldwin's shorthand for all of this is to choose life yeah right we can't choose the illusions and the, the promise of innocence or you know the illusion of safety we have to choose life and in choosing life that means we have to confront the ugliness the funkiness of it all yeah. right and and you know there's this wonderful line in the hidden wound by uh, Wendell Berry, this Kentucky-bred white boy whom I love, right? And, and Wendell Berry says racism comes to him as natural as language. And that he has to, as a person who's trying to transform the world, he has to be mindful of that regularly. And so this is not about a how, how to be anti-racist. That's different. That's, that's too corporate for me. This is more about how do we fundamentally change how we exist together, how we live together, how we rid ourselves of the categories that blind me to you. And what is being revealed in this moment is what we knew in 2016. The sociological data was clear. The social science data more generally was clear that the voting, that the partisan divide mapped onto a deep racial divide in this country. People are unsettled by those damn Cheerio commercials with those racially ambiguous kids and all of the same-sex love and that, you know, something is going on in America on Madison Avenue and in these cities that's really upsetting people, right? Uh, that America is not America. So we're going to make it America again, which is the same way of saying, Negro, get in your place, right? In that sense, right? And so part of our task, and this is what Baldwin at least helped me to see, because I'm, I'm watching the same thing you're watching. I'm hearing it. I'm worried about my child, who's now a grown man, right? I'm worried about the people I love in this world. Um, and, I'm, and I'm getting angry, and I'm, and I'm despairing, and I'm disillusioned, and I'm, I'm pissed. And Baldwin is angry. He's disillusioned. He's rageful. He's pissed. Yet he finds the resources to, to pick up the pieces, to get in the fight again. Mm-hmm. And that's where... Um, Moving, you know, rummaging through the rubble and the ruins, as he puts it. That's what I found, man. And that's what led me to write the book. Begin again. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Black Lives Matter. I, I think what's beautiful about the Black Lives Matter is we're tearing down these, these, these mm-hmm. idols 
of of racism. You know, I didn't know up until the Black Lives Matter during uh, Obama, and, and I started learning and listening that those were symbols uh, that were put up in the Jim Crow era. You know, I just yeah. thought there were some crap somebody put up after the after the confederacy war but this is the problem everyone needs to get educated especially us white people as to you know what how what our contribution is to this what 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 the lie is what what how we need to fix it within ourselves you know yeah james baldwin said this isn't my problem this is your problem you get it you hit it dead on the head he's like this is your problem you created this you made these you made these names you made these these uh, biases this is your problem that you have to fix and so looking at you know i and 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 i want people to as they read through your books and and they look at black lives matter is to understand the struggle of what's going on uh, i had a wonderful author on uh, dr lawrence chatters on the show and he talked about growing up as a child he 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 found that uh, one out of three black people end up in prison. Right. And so he had two brothers. And so literally at five years old, he looked at his two brothers and went, which one of us goes to prison? And uh, sadly, one of his brothers did go to prison. He fit the mold. Um, you know, with Black Lives Matter, unfortunately, we had to watch what uh, uh, Nicholas Bacola, who showed up on the show, he said, Chris, that was a modern day lynching. And we all yeah. got to see that. Yeah. Um, and you talk about the I, I, I really want to visit that uh, the lynching museum. I believe it's in Alabama. Montgomery. Yeah, it's, Montgomery, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I've seen the things I mean, you, you just tear up looking at it. Uh, and you talk about in the book about your journey uh, touring it. Uh, but what people need to realize is there's there's and hopefully we are. There's these oppressive elements. There's uh, racial uh, elements throughout everything we do. I mean, we have, what is it, 5% of the, the world's uh, population, yet 25% of the people incarcerated and the majority are African American or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And we can see now the police policies and the problems that feed this prison industrial complex up to the judges. Reuters had a great article on judges uh, that it did and the issues in there and how they racially profile and they racially right. punish. And then it goes up to the prison systems, which, you know, a lot of these people lobby uh, uh, to keep, you know, their private prisons, and everything. I mean, we are just, I remember that what was that old line from, was it newsroom uh, where he says, uh, uh, America isn't great. What are we great at? Uh, people <laughs> believe in angels and, and people and, and having the most people in prison. Like that's, yeah, yeah, that's what we're yeah. great at. You know, so, Baldwin saw this in 1972 in, in his book, No Name in the Street. In some ways, I was interviewing Angela, the great Angela Davis in, in Princeton. And, you know, because I, I saw this video of, of her and Baldwin. And Baldwin was introducing her. And, you know, Baldwin wrote a letter in 1970 on behalf of Angela Davis. That's just stunning. And as she was on the FBI one most wanted list. And Angela Davis is at this event and she's just smiling and giggling like a little, like a little girl. Right. It's just so beautiful to witness. And so I'm interviewing her. And as I'm interviewing her, she she says, in so many ways, he was out there by himself. He was so alone. But No Name in the Street, Eddie, quote, may very well be the first book in carceral studies ever written. Because hmm. she's talking about Baldwin reflecting on the Safe Streets Act, talking about Baldwin, talking, uh, writing about um, a particular form of policing, dealing with the Tony Maynard case. Uh, in that text, right? So Baldwin is seeing you know, the cornerstone of, of the carceral state put in place. It's not, and it's not just a Republican story, right? So if you look at the back of the Kerner Commission report, 
in 68, there's this stuff about expanding police and statistics around, around black communities. Why? Because they want to control these communities that just exploded. You, when you hear the way in which Democrats are talking about uh, nonviolent uh, demonstrations in, in the early part of the 60s, there's a call for law and order. It's not just Richard Nixon. It's not just Ronald Reagan. So, you know, I think um, there's so much to, to talk about with regards to this moment and dealing with uh, the lie. You know, there's this line that Baldwin wrote in 1964 in this essay entitled The White Problem. And I write about it in the book. And it's, it's just, I'm going to read the passage for you if you don't mind. He says, the people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. For if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. That lie is the basis of our present trouble. Yeah. So he's the lie about our capacities, the lie about our passions and capabilities, the lie to justify the cruelty of slavery. Then the discourse built around that lie that justifies our actions. Uh, then the way in which the lie works to, to contain anything to reveal that we're lying to ourselves, right? Uh, all of this impacts how we understand ourselves in relation to democracy itself. It disfigures and distorts our characters so that we can't even become the kinds of people that democracies require. And would you say the violence is a part of the shame of that? Oh, the internal shame? In part, I, yes. I can't remember if you spoke about that or, or James did in his book, but I, I picked up on it because I see that in the, the kneeling officers, the, mm. the batons. You know, um, I was lucky enough to grow up in California, so I, 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 I didn't really see race much. In fact, I was uh, in my 11th grade. Uh, one of my best friends was African-American. I didn't even know it. And, and the history teacher said, uh, you know, so he, he, we're in Utah where it's 90% white, which is horrible culture and food. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a real example of not letting white people run a uh, country is bad idea. Just horrible food. Um, so that's my personal opinion. Uh, I just lost the white people in Utah. Um, but it won't be the first time. So, uh, but, but, uh, he said he, he was, we were talking about slavery and he pointed him out cause he was the only African American gentleman probably in our whole school. And he said, uh, you know, what, what was your feeling of, of that? And it was the first time I looked at him and went, oh, wow. Okay. And, and, and so understanding, uh, you know, things that I was raised with, like one of the things I was raised with was John Wayne. John Wayne was a big oh, yeah. thing that helped shape me as a man and identity that I had and the manifest destiny of the lie and, 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 and everything that you see. And like you talk about that fabric that is so, that is so tight in, in how we are and how we see each other. Um, yeah. And, and there's so much that we have to unbundle and the, the shame of that in going, uh, you know, what did we do? We did this horrible thing and we've got to unpackage all that and then we have to rectify it and somehow right. lay a new fabric to society. This is what Brian Stevenson says, right? You know, he mm -hmm. says that truth and reconciliation is sequential, mm -hmm. right? You just can't reconcile. You got to first tell the truth. Yeah. We have to tell the truth about what we've done. 
it seems to me. I mean, think about it, right? So, you know, you have the Civil War, you have radical reconstruction, which is this attempt to do our first works over. You have the found, the second founding, the modern U.S. nation state comes into being. And then, you know, within a decade, you have the lost cause. And the lost cause is a lie. Mm -hmm. It's a lie. So not only did most of those Confederate monuments, most of them were built in the 1890s and early 1920s and then in the 1950s. They were built in a moment when many of the veterans of the Confederate Army were dying off, but at the same time that Jim Crow was being consolidated in the South as the law of the land. Anglo-Saxonism began to frame our global adventures around the world. At the moment in which we're consolidating white supremacy in the South, we're annexing countries. We're bringing countries under U.S. rule that are full of black and brown people, Haiti, Cuba, the Philippines, and the like, right? It's a lie. And then you think about, we talk about the monuments, Chris, which that's easy. Taking down Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, that's easy. The, the damn highways in Chicago are monuments to an ideology. They were yeah. to bisect the city to keep black and white separate. Oh, wow. Our built environment reflects this. So mm-hmm. part of what we do when we tell the truth is not to engage in self-flagellation, mm-hmm. right? To beat ourselves over the head because, you know, with guilt and the like. It's to tell ourselves the truth to free ourselves to be otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that then we can engage not only in reconciliation, but repair. Yeah. We can build a more just world. But you can't do that if you're, if you're, if you're like the Lost Boys in yeah. Never Neverland. You know? And you know, just as you grew up on John Wayne, we have a generation now growing up on the modern versions, uh, oh. modern day versions of John. They're Marvel heroes. Right? They're the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Right? It's still this melodramatic world of good and evil. Although... Marvel is a bit more complicated. <laughs> it's, not, it's not DC universe, right? But you get the point of me. I think the people I'm really concerned about are the, is the new generation that grows up idolizing Donald Trump. Um, yeah. it, I mean, to me, the, the greatest, one of the great crises has been, is that resetting. Like I, I was just screaming, he's dragging us back to 1950. I don't want to go back. You know, I, I grew up as a child and I remember one of the first images that really stuck out at me with Martin Luther King was watching a picture of him and his child, uh, maybe two years old, mm-hmm. um, and, the, and a burned KKK cross on his front lawn. And I remember staring at that photo for the longest time thinking, what does a father tell his son about that experience? Well, how does that shape his life? And one of the things that James Baldwin is great about that I think a lot of white people in this country need to listen to is what the African-American experience is with racism, what, what it's like to live in the ghettos, what, what it's like waking up. Um, you know, like my friend, uh, Dr. Lawrence Chatters spoke mm. about how he, he reaches that, that, that moment where he goes, Holy crap, you know, there's, and he talks in our podcast about, you know, all the different levels of impression that he had to do. And to me, it would be crushing. Uh, I, I put myself empathetically in that position and go, this, I, I don't know how I could, I'm, I'm not sure I could perform if you were to put those constraints on me today. Yeah. Um, at, at being able to do, and that's what we need to learn, I think, from your book. Black Lives Matter, James Baldwin, that we need to change all this stuff. Like the redlining. Like I, I heard one uh, gentleman, he spoke about how his father would never drive down streets that were named Robert E. Lee Boulevard 
because the redlining of what those were designed to do, like you said, the freeways were designed to keep African-Americans from moving into those neighborhoods. And you just see the systematic racism and the, the fabric of it and the, the, the complexity and the detail. It's, it's, it's crazy and overwhelming how, how deep it goes. Right. And, and, and the way it gets justified um, is by telling lies about black people. Because right? we live in a society where white people are valued more than others. We know this. It's at the heart of everything in so many ways. Um, and we tell the story about black people being lazy. We tell about not having uh, initiative by living in a culture of pathology and all of this stuff, right? And, and by virtue of that, you know, it, it allows certain segments of, of, of white America to maintain their innocence, mm-hmm. a kind of willful ignorance about what's happening across the tracks, and, you know, in 1963, you see my beat up version of the fire next time. Uh, 1963, Baldwin wrote about this. He says, and I know which is much worse. And this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them. That they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. One can be, indeed, one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death, for this is what most of mankind has been best at since we've heard of man. But it is not permissible, but it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. Mm -hmm. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. So all of this stuff you you just described, and we don't know anything about it. Oh, my God. And, you know, it's like, it's like watching Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Is this America? Is this America? It's like it's on loop. Watching his and, girls. <laughs> you know, and you just kind of say, well, what, where the hell have you been living? <laughs> You've been, I know, I feel that. <laughs> is this I America? Feel that. Is this is America? And, you know, and for, for a person who had to raise a black, a black boy in this country, and you were even at 24 years old when he, grown man, 6'2", right, brown graduate. Every time he walks out the door, you worry if he's going to come back home. Yeah. And what that, what that does to the spirit, man, is part so, of the daily cuts, you know? So many of my friends have expressed that. We've talked about it on social media. We've talked about it in private, about the, the, the chat they have to have with their children. And I, I, it's just so shameful to me that that has to take place in, in my what my perception of America, I should probably say, because it's evolving. Um, the how do we how do we fix this, Eddie? Do we have to start teaching about racism and 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 teaching kids early in school? How do we lay a foundation to to change this generational roller coaster that we're on? To I know that's probably uh, we probably talk for hours, on that. <laughs> but but I mean. We're tearing down the monuments. Hopefully, we tear down the street signs. Hopefully, we change the name of the schools. We change the name of the military bases. But uh, between reading your book and coming to reckoning of self and 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 stuff, I mean, what would some good steps be? I mean, well, to me, I mean, we, yeah. Go ahead. No, I think we have to address at the level of policy mm-hmm. and at the level of story. We have to tell ourselves a different story about who we are as Americans, and it's a story that actually reflects the fact that we're mosaic people, we're a mosaic of people, that we're not this city on the hill or the redeemer nation, that George Washington wasn't, never didn't, that he lied his ass off. He wasn't just <laughs> chopping down trees and never telling lies, right? Um, that tell the, 
tell the tell the complicated story of our beginning in pursuit of a more just world. You know, it's not about perfection. It's about a more just set of arrangements where the dignity and, and standing of every human being is, is, is recognized and acknowledged. What does it mean at the level of policy, right? Uh, we have to figure out how to address the wealth gap. Um, so we, we've never committed ourselves to educating all of our children in this country, ever. So divesting, they talk about defunding the police. They've been defunding public education since Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, there's a reason why you got all of these private schools when you tell their history. They, most of the dates of their founding, 1955, 1956, 1954, because they are the products of resistance to desegregation. Uh, uh, um, and so we have to invest in, in, in a robust public education system. We have to begin to think about, uh, you know, you know, Derek Hamilton, an, an economist at the New School, has talked about baby bonds for black folk. Right, trying to figure out how we invest in black children uh, so that they, a generation, at least begin to have wealth because we were cut out from the moment in which the vaunted American middle class came into being because of the deal broke between, brokered between FDR and Southern Democrats. They cut black people out of it. So there's a reason why the wealth gap, gap exists. It's not because we haven't worked hard. It's because we didn't have access to markets and mortgages. Right? We didn't have access to the wealth that the government made possible. Yeah. Right? So it's gonna, just as policy denied us, policy is going to have to correct. Yeah. But we do know in this country, Chris, that at, there's this paradox. The country becomes more anti-racist in its public opinion, but it doesn't agree with policies designed to address inequality. Mm-hmm. So we become more anti-racist, but... For example, we, we hate, we, the majority of Americans are not for segregated schools. We see that number decline from Brown v. Board. But large numbers of Americans do not agree with affirmative action as a remedy mm. for segregation, segregated schools. So we have this gap between our stated commitments and our practices, when in fact our practices reveal what we truly value. One of the things that really disturbs me in this moment that I worry a lot about is I saw a racial breakdown of who's suffering most under COVID-19. And you see the sadism of, of Donald Trump. And you have, to, you have to wonder if there isn't a white nationalist agenda behind his, his, his being like, let it go, because we know that Hispanics and African-Americans are going to be are going to bear the brunt of it, according to the uh, uh, and native racial, peoples and native people and native peoples too yeah, destroyed yeah. here in here in Utah. They were destroyed the Navajo Nation. They're just they're just suffering with it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a hell of a journey. And, and I hope that and, and I love that Black Lives Matter is continuing. Like it, it doesn't seem to have died out. In fact, it seems uh, engendered by uh, what Donald Trump has done. I, and hopefully, we reach this moment of reckoning, awareness, or consciousness. We're not fully conscious, but we we've reached a moment where we go, "This has got to be addressed." And in, until we resolve this, we can never be a great nation. We can never be a great nation. Absolutely. I Absolutely. mean, we we have to resolve this. A rising tide lifts all boats, and this politics of scarcity. Where and populism, where it has to be like, well, in order for me to get what I this this lie of the the American dream and manifest destiny means someone else has to suffer. You know, I read early on um, when uh, uh, and that was the other question, big question I had for you. Did 
I read early on uh, an African-American gentleman. I, I was trying to find it. It might have been Van Jones, but he wrote, he wrote, it's actually good that we're going through Donald Trump because Donald Trump says the quiet part aloud. We now know who the racists are. They don't hide. They say it out loud. Did we have to go through this? Was this necessary that we had to puke up, vomit up Donald Trump? Did we, I mean, was this our destiny, our payment for, I don't know. You know, I don't know, you know, that it's such a Christian formulation that, you know, evil is always ministerial to good, <laughs> you know, it's, and I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I want to commit to that. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I do know this though, that the, the catastrophe of Trumpism has revealed the ugliness of who we are, whether we had to do it or not, because a lot of people are suffering. 130,000 are dead because of this guy yeah. and the incompetence of this administration. People have, had, people have not been able to say goodbye to people that they love because of this pandemic and because of this nonsense. Um, so I don't want to see, I don't see any good in it um, in, that, in, 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 in a basic sense. But what has been revealed is who we are, right? Uh, and there's no going back. The genie is out of the damn bottle now. You can't put him back in there. Um, and so whether we elect Joe Biden or, or whatever happens in, in November, um, we're going to have to make a choice because I don't think if we, if we, if we fail um, that what will follow we can bear. I don't know if the country can survive a, a mistake a wrong choice in this moment. We have to change, because I'll say this really quickly. I think millennials and Gen Zers, um, and this is why I end the book the way I do, right? I'm looking for Baldwin's grave, and these, this, this, this group of young men are smoking strong weed, and, I, and I'm trying <laughs> to find Baldwin, and I'm asking him in the weed, wafts and, well, you know, it's a, you know, I'm with Carol Weinstein, one of my close friends, and, and we're trying to find Jimmy's grave, and and, uh, and lo and behold, he's right behind the young folk. But young folk today have kind of come to the conclusion that America is broken. They are the generation of catastrophe. Katrina, climate change, great recession, mass school shootings, police murders, global pandemic, uh, economic depression. This generation knows that America is broken and like young people around the world, they're going one or two directions. They're groping for a more just America or they're reaching for fascism and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. You know, I keep telling people, Dylan Roof was not a baby boomer. Richard Spencer is not a baby boomer. These are young folk. The Boogaloo Boys are not old geriatric people. They, these, are, these are young people, uh, the Proud Boys, right? So part of what we have to understand is that um, Young folk understand that it, uh, have concluded that America is broken, and the choice we make, the choices we make now, will determine whether or not this fragile experiment survives. Yeah, there's a beautiful piece that you have that they play on commercials on MSNBC that's just touching. Um, you know, my biggest worry is that even if we elect Biden. Uh, uh, people of minorities, like we talked about, African Americans, Hispanics, the Native Americans, are still going to be suffering. We're all going to be suffering probably for the next year or two, economic, mm -hmm. health-wise, 
dying, families broken. You look at the same thing with the industrial prison complex. James Baldwin talked about this, how many broken families and destruction and the raging. Um, we saw that in the gentleman who, uh, at Wendy's who uh, just didn't want to go back to prison because he wanted to raise his three daughters. Yeah. And he panicked. And, yeah. you know, I he was drunk, and I've, I've been drunk. I don't make all my best choices when I was drunk either. I got to admit to that. But there was no reason that man should die for for that thing. But that it just embodies and, and displays the, the amount of terror of yeah. and destruction that these this has on people's lives. Um, is there any way to reconcile this? with? Do we have to reconcile the white church thing? To, to, to keep them from regurgitating another Trump because their their support of him has just been. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, we need to, we need to call it what it is mm-hmm. and it's, and it's idolatry. Um, it's the religion of white nationalism. Yeah. Uh, in so many ways, my good friend, David Gushy says that it's clear that whiteness matters more than Christianity in these instances. Um, yeah. And that's really what I saw in your book. The way you described it, I went, holy crap. This is why, you know, I, well, I left religion when I was young. I've always studied, like, why people believe what they do, uh, whether it's believing in Martians or believing in fa- fantasies of stuff under your bed or whatever the case is. Why do people believe what they do? Why do they grasp it so tightly? And why are they willing to kill and destroy other people uh, with those ideas? Um, and one of my biggest other fears is, is that we pull another Obama with Joe Biden, that we, that we, that all the racism, you know, people go, okay, well, we got to go retract back in our closets and yeah. we never resolve the, the wound, the lie. Yeah. And then we just recycle again. And I'm going to be, you and I are going to be talking to James Baldwin 30 years from now. <laughs> I, I will be, I will be a, a stone cold alcoholic by that time. You and me, you and me, my <laughs> you know, friend. But you know, Chris, I think it's really important that you say, you know, Typically, we America likes to tinker around the edges and then correct, congratulate itself and expect gratitude. Right? We did yeah. it. See, now you should be thankful. Uh, we like to tinker around the edges. Um, it seems to me, and and I'm convinced of this, that um, we cannot settle for normalcy. Going back to what was normal, and I'm reminded of Dr. King's speech in 1965 after the Selma march. And there's this moment where he says, people want, us, people want normalcy. And then he started listing what was. And his horror. Just all the death. Horror. And folks want us to go back to normal. What is normal? The wealth, the, the gap between the top 1% and everybody else? Mm-hmm. What's normal? People dying because they don't have health care? What's normal? People can't get a decent education. Student loan debt is more than credit card debt. What's normal? What was normal? We weren't, it wasn't working then. Yeah. And so it seems to me at this point, we can't, we can't reelect Donald Trump and we can't elect safety. Mm-hmm. We have to re- re-envision America. That is what we must do. Begin again. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of your book, Eddie. Eddie, I could talk to you for hours because I, I love I love how you think and 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 the the intellectualness and, and emotion that you you deliver everything. Um, this is the most excellent book. Anything more we need to uh, you want to plug, Eddie, before we go? No, you know, just follow, I'm on Twitter, es glaude at, at es glaude on Twitter, and um, you know, I'm on also on Instagram at es glaude. 
um, we can continue the conversation on those social platforms. You know, it's then Chris, just thank you. Thank for, you for, for reading the book and taking the time to, to grapple with these ideas that I, that I, that I poured my heart into. So. Thank you. And, and I wanted you to know that you made that difference and I'm going to try and share and, and, and get that out there and learn so much. Listen and learn, right? So thanks to my audience for tuning in. We certainly appreciate it. Go check out Eddie's book. You can go to amazon.com and a lot of different places as Eddie uh, mentioned, go buy it from your independent booksellers so you can support it there. Begin again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. <laughs> Eddie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Monitz, for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. All right, man. And you take care of yourself. Be safe. You too, sir.